Good afternoon. Council, we appreciate y'all's flexibility with our timing. Uh, our next case is uh, Upchurch <coughs> versus Harp Buildings Builders et al. I'll note that Justice Dietz is recused in this case, and we will hear from the appellant. like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Your honors, may it please the court. My name is Brian Kromke. I'm from the New Hanover County Bar. I'm pleased to be here. This is my first time in 24 years of practice. I have my parents in from Buffalo to watch, um, so it is my pleasure to be here. Um, I'm arguing on behalf today of uh, a man named Valentine Joseph Cleary, uh, the defendant in this lawsuit. The issue before the court today, as identified on our brief, is does the filing of plaintiff's lawsuit toll or suspend the running of the statute of limitations governing a compulsory counterclaim, such that a defendant's compulsory counterclaim relates back to the date of filing of the plaintiff's complaint? I'm going to start my argument by emphasizing to this Supreme Court that this is an issue that has not been reviewed by the North Carolina Supreme Court since 1874. We're going to talk today, I'm going to talk today about some subsequent Court of Appeals cases from 1974, a year before, or a year after I was born, and then some cases that occurred in the early 2000s that tweaked the Supreme Court's ruling. But I want to emphasize, this is the first time that we could tell that the, this court has reviewed this particular issue. And I read you my issue from my brief, and I, to sum it up in layman's terms, I would say that for my parents, this, this, what is this issue about? This issue is about if a person gets sued based on a set of facts, and they file a counterclaim outside the three-year statute of limitations within their answer, do they have the right to sue back? It's boiled all down, all this argument today. Does Val Cleary, my client, have the right to sue back? Now, reading the statement of facts, this case started with a car wreck on I-40. Many of you may have driven down to Wilmington, where we're from, on I-40 East. One of the last bodies of water you pass is the Cape Fear River. There's a bridge on I-40 over Cape Fear River. Val Cleary is a, a general contractor. He's an Irish immigrant who works on antique homes and buildings. On the morning of December 19, 2015, he and a co-worker were driving east on I-40 for a job in Raleigh. There was a ladder on, uh, crossing his lane of traffic and he stopped. He sent the, the worker out to pick that ladder up and he was ran into from behind by the plaintiff Farron Jerome Upchurch, and that's what the case is about. Now, there are maybe disputed facts, but what is not disputed is that this, this issue before the court was spawned by a car wreck, a, a green light, red light, or a he said, she said issue. But Farron Upchurch filed his lawsuit on the very last day of the three-year statute of limitations to bring an action for personal injury. Um, under NCGS, you know, 152, there's a three-year statute of limitations to bring an action for, for, for personal injury. I understand that the lawsuit was hand-delivered to Valentine Cleary's wife, who's an attorney, and it was quickly turned over to my firm, who f the very next day filed an answer to the lawsuit and counterclaims. So on the third year, next day, three years, one day, Val Cleary sues back. He answers the complaint and he sues back. And that is why we are here. Um, 
if you look at some of the factual allegations in the statement of the case, I don't think there's any dispute about the record of what, what, what occurred. Mr. Upchurch's lawyers initially filed an answer, I think a couple months later, to the counterclaims. They did not assert a statute of limitations defense. Um, the case played out. There was an amended answer that included more factual allegations by Mr. Upchurch. And then Mr. Upchurch's insurance company got a hold of it and they hired Mr. Brown here who got a hold of the case and he filed an amended answer that included uh, a statute of limitations defense. I want to say that was December of 2020. Um, the plaintiff Upchurch then filed a motion to dismiss based on that statute of limitations defense. Initially, the trial judge in North Carolina, in, in Wilmington, did not allow that motion because he said that I believe the, the, the complaint was amended without leave of the court. And we all know Rule 13 allows, uh, or, or Rule 15 rather, allows one to amend, uh, amend a, a, a pleading. And I'll read it to you, Your Honors. Leave shall be freely given when justice so requires. That's a phrase I'd like you to all remember, when justice so requires. So the complaint, the amended answer to the counterclaim was filed and then another motion to dismiss was filed and the trial judge the second time around, a different child judge, the, the recent re, recently retired um, judge uh, Phyllis Gorham dismissed uh, the plaintiff's count or the defendant Cleary's counterclaim. And we filed uh, an appeal. There was a three to nothing panel in the court of appeals that's, that agreed with the trial judge um, and, and here we are today. The law of the land regarding compulsory counterclaims was laid down by the North Carolina Supreme Court in 1874 in a case called Brumble v. Brown. Bum Brumble v. Brown was a case about someone suing a sheriff and apparently that sheriff died and so he had an executor. The sheriff's name was King, Brown was the executor. They sued the executor for what appeared to be the sheriff's failure to pay back some of the notes he was assigned to collect by Brumble. The tantamount holding in that case, Brumble v. Brown, 1874, and I'll read it. A plea of set off or of a counterclaim refers to the commencement of the action and must be true and good at that date, and if not barred by statute at that time, it does not become so afterwards during the pendency of the action. And that was the law of the land, Your Honors, from 1874 up until 204, and I'll get to that. The 204 Court of Appeals cases relied heavily on the idea that that law laid down in Brumble v. Brown should be changed because of the legislature's failure to explicitly codify counterclaims and their statute of limitations. When you look at the rules of civil procedure, Val Cleary would argue that there, there's nothing in there to give this court deference on how to rule in this case. And I'm going to come back to that idea with the idea that justice requires and justice is, 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 is driving my argument today. Um, so the, the rules of civil procedure were enacted by the state of North Carolina. I think it was in 67. They became effective in 1970. I just read you the, the law of the land pertaining to compulsory counterclaims as ruled in Brumble v. Brown. There's the next case we feel is very on point. It follows this, the, the rules of civil procedure. It's called Henry Gardner, February 6th, 1974, okay? That case, we contend, affirmed the Supreme Court's ruling in Brumble v. Brumble v. Brown, and it affirmed the holding of a defendant's counterclaim relates to the commencement of the action, and it is not barred by the statute of limitations at that time. It does not become barred afterwards during dependency of the action. So I would sit here today and argue that the Court of Appeals laid down a decision in 1974, 100 years after Brumble v. Brown, that affirmed Brumble v. 
Brumble v. Brown and followed it. Okay? And that continued to be the law of the land up until the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, two cases came out. One I don't think people had their eye on. The first one was December 16, 2003, State Farm Fire and Casualty Company versus Darcy. This looked to be a declaratory judgment action where a couple who were in a car, bad car wreck, one of the driver of the couple died, the wife sued on the idea that, hey, I had a policy for my vehicle and I also had a million dollar umbrella policy, I should be able to kick into the umbrella, umbrella policy, State Farm fought them. The, the amended counterclaim in that case, Darcy, was kicked out by the Court of Appeals because it dealt with a different set of facts, it dealt with fraud. And, it, and the argument there was that there was not notice within the three-year statute of limitations. But I emphasize Darcy was about an amended counterclaim from an essentially different set of facts than was pled out by State Farm initially in their declaratory action. The State Farm versus Darcy decision was then used by the Court of Appeals in a case rendered on April 6, 2004, when we're all going to be arguing this, Farmer Research Corporation versus MASH. The Court of Appeals at that point in time changed the law of the land that had been in place for 124 years, as read by Brumble v. Brown. And, and I'll read it. We disagreed that filing of counterclaims should relate back to the date that plaintiff filed its original complaint. Okay? And again, I would emphasize that Farmer Research was a slightly different set of facts. That was about a, a CEO and a president of a company who was terminated for cause by the company. They started fighting over what stocks he could keep. Very late in the game, a counterclaim was filed by the MASH, the defendant in that case. Similar facts, but not entirely similar. So there's a, a slight change. And, it, and it, goes, it touches upon the issues covered in Rule 13, Your Honors. Rule 13 covers compulsory counterclaims and permissive counterclaims. So what I would contend were wrong decisions from the Court of Appeals were their failure to make that distinguishment between a compulsory counterclaim and a permissive counterclaim. The law of the land changed in 2004. A Court of Appeals case overturned what we contend should still be the law of the land from the Supreme Court is that a, a compulsory counterclaim filed after the statute of limitation, survives because it, 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 it's treated as though it was filed the same day the action was filed, the commencement of the action. And those are our cases on point to the compulsory counterclaim and the statute of limitations. The next part of my brief goes into where I feel the 2004-2003 Court of Appeals cases failed. We have... Uh, the next case is, is an in-re in, in appeal from civil penalty assessed for violations of sedimentation. And, and that case holds that where a panel of the North Carolina Court of Appeals has decided the same issue, in, albeit in a different case, a subsequent panel of the same court is bound by that precedent unless it has been overturned by a higher, higher court. Counsel, I, let, me, let me ask you to uh, talk to us about some policy. You've mentioned stare decisis, so that's your brumble argument. Okay. Uh, what, what are the policies that favor relation back, or what rights would be waived by a counterclaimant who, for whatever reason, didn't bring their action within the um, set statute of limitations? Um, why should those claims survive? Your Honor, the, the, the two cases I filed last night sort of deal with these public policy, and the reason I added those two cases, one is in a New Jersey Court of Appeals case, the other one is a Northern District, Federal District in Alabama. Both cases had people filing on the very last day for what appeared to be clear reasons. They didn't want to get sued back. If you remember in my opening, I said this case is about if someone is sued, can they sue back? As far as a public policy reason, I would argue that the law that the honorables in this case are going to set down, it's going to apply to all kinds of varieties and issues of law. That we don't want to see people gaming the system, filing a lawsuit on the last day, knowing they can't be sued back. That could occur 
in assault and battery cases, trespass cases where neighbors are fighting over property lines. It could occur in construction cases where all, we all know in construction cases there's, no, there's always potential litigation. So I would argue that by if we allow Farron Upchurch to sue on the last day and prevent Val Cleary from suing back, it will create more and more people deciding to game the system like that. In this case, Val Cleary was not going to sue. He decided he didn't want to, he didn't need to. I wasn't at fault. I'm okay. I'm not hurt that bad. So I'm not going to sue. I feel that if Valentine Cleary isn't able to sue back, it might lead to a rash of lawsuits coming in at the last minute. I also go back to the argument, Justice, Your Honor. Is it fair for someone to have a contract dispute? No, yeah, it's not worth much. So no, the one guy doesn't say, one guy says, I don't want to, I don't want to go, I'm not going to sue. It's expensive. Lawyers are expensive. I don't want to deal with the courts. And, and his antagonist sues the very last day of the statute over the same exact set of facts. That other person chooses to push that issue in front of a judge and a jury, expend the resources of the court, I would argue that public policy requires a fair fight. Public policy requires the ability of both sides to assert claims. If you're going to push this issue into court, whether that issue be the, who caused the car wreck, who caused the construction dispute, who's at fault for the contract breach, or who's at fault in the fight, the family fights. I think both the cases I submitted yesterday dealt with family fighting. And, and what appeared to be purposeful waiting until the last minute. I'm not, I'm not sure what was in the mindset of, of Ferone Upchurch, but it, it certainly appears as though he didn't want, he waited until the last minute purposely. And I think justice requires Val Cleary to be able to sue back. And that's what this case is about. I hope that answers your question, Chief Justice Newby, as far as public policy. Um, when I look at, you know, another public policies, federal courts have adopted the uh, theory of equitable tolling and that compulsory counterclaims can be filed after the statute of limitations. If someone else picks a fight, puts a, files a complaint, and moves, in, moves it into the, the, the hands of the justice system, equity requires the ability to fight back and also make claims back so a jury doesn't find itself in the weird position of, wow, he didn't cause that wreck, he was the victim in that wreck, and he can't sue back, he doesn't get any, any of his damages paid for, that, 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 that's the main reason we're here. But you, you also look, though, Your Honor, the, the Court of Appeals changed the, court, the, the, the law that was set down in 1974 by the Henry Gardner Court of Appeals. So they're bound to follow the, that same court's precedence, and they went ahead and overturned a higher court, and they, they did that by saying, well, the rules of civil procedure don't directly address this. In fact, I would argue the failure of the legislature, okay? I'm a lawyer, so I like, well, I'm on the side of the justice system, the side of the judiciary. The legislature's failure to specifically address and enumerate statute of limitations for counterclaims which are separate and apart from claims. We read our rules of civil procedure. There's a specific section for claims being asserted. And then there's a specific section for counterclaims. Okay? I would argue the, the, the legislature's failure to specifically address this issue gives the judiciary, us, the Honorable Supreme Court of North Carolina, the right to address this issue and make litigation fair in North Carolina. If you decide to sue someone on a set of facts, you should be expected, you should expect to be sued back in return for the same exact claims. You shouldn't be allowed to game the system by filing on the last day. And that's exactly what happened in this case in the cases I, I sent yesterday. Um, there is, as the, the, the plaintiff appellee pointed out, there's, there's a difference in some of the states not then the 50 states, some are different. I would argue the majority of the states follow the federal rules and allow compulsory counterclaims to relate back to the commencement of the action. And I would ask the court to look at the difference between a claim and a counterclaim. A counterclaim is a defensive action. 
I'm filing this claim against you because you drug me into court. You filed a lawsuit against me on this set of facts. Now, we're not, I'm not here asking the court to allow uh, uh, a, a permissive counterclaim, a, a counterclaim not based on the same set of facts. We're not allowing Val Cleary to sue Mr. Upchurch on, let's say, services performed that weren't paid for. This is the same exact set of facts. There's no, no difference there. And, and, and help, when, help me a little bit with this statutory construction. Okay. So, uh, one fifteen. Uh, says civil actions can only be commenced within the periods prescribed in this chapter. So what is the commencement of the action and is the filing of a counterclaim a commencement? I would agree it's not, Your Honor. The filing of a, uh, there is a difference between an action and a counteraction, a counterclaim. An action asserts the claims, a counterclaim is a defensive action. The only reason you're there is you are countering the claims that are being made against you. And I note that there's different rules for those. There are, there's, it's very specific, different rules. And I would, I would argue that when you bring an action, that's, you, you're bringing the complaint in front of the court. A counterclaim, you're not bringing an action, you're defending an action. You're responding to claims by countering, by, by filing counterclaims. And like I said, the, 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 the legislative branch has had ample opportunity to address this and specifically enumerate a three-year or a whatever statute of limitations for any various claims or counterclaims, and they just they chose not to is what I would argue. So I would require, I would ask the, the court to, 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 to go in and, and, and justice requires the ability of a litigant to file counterclaims that are based on the same set of acts, compulsory counterclaims outside the statute of limitations. Um, and I used, I, I, it's, it, it's enumerated, but I, like I said, I'm requesting the, the, court of, uh, the Supreme Court of North Carolina issue an order that requires Val Cleary's counterclaims to be heard because justice requires it. And I think that justice, as, as we all think of it, should be the same in the federal court and the majority of the states. Thank you, Your Honors. It's been my pleasure, unless anyone has any more questions. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Please the court. My name is Maynard Brown. I'm from the New Hanover County Bar. This case presents a very simple and discreet issue, and that is, is whether a counterclaim, a late filed counterclaim, is time barred by the statute of limitations. That answer is yes, it is barred. And that was answered back by Farmer Research back in 2004. Now, now, now that's a court of appeals case. I understand that. So and we're I, not bound by that. I, absolutely, sir. But what I am going to be talking about is the statutory basis of that decision. And that is you are bound by because that's statute. And that this court, when you have unambiguous, clear language in statutes, you're obligated to follow that, that statutory basis. As opposed to what appellant is asking is that you interject your opinions or your your perceptions into what is a clear statutory history or statutory language in this case. And that starts with the first of the three cases, which is with the three, um, the three statutes. And of course, that's 1-15. And what does it say? Civil actions can only be commenced within the periods prescribed in this chapter. And after the cause of action has accrued, except where in special cases a difference limitation is prescribed by statute. That's very specific. It talks about actions. It doesn't talk about lawsuits. It doesn't talk about the commencement of, the commencement of, and this goes to your question, the commencement of the action 
as pertains to Mr. Cleary, is the filing of his counterclaim, which is admitted to be a day late. Counsel, so, I, have a, I have a question about that and, and whether, and, and I'll just, uh, I'm looking at Rule 13A, uh, and so that's the compulsory counterclaim um, provision. And, and this goes to <clears throat> the, the question asked earlier about whether, and that I think you're getting at, whether um, the filing of a counterclaim counts as uh, the, the commencement of a civil action for purposes of the statute of limitations, okay? Yes, sir. If you look at, uh, so, so A is the basic rule. If it's, you know, if, if the counterclaim arises from the same transaction or occurrence, the general rule is you've got to go ahead and, 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 and assert it. But then there's an exception, a couple of exceptions. And the one that caught my eye is A1. So it says, uh, the pleader need not state the, the claim if, one, at the time the action was commenced, the counterclaim was the subject of another pending action. So that seems to draw a distinction between a counterclaim and an action that uses a different term. Um, well, <clears throat> and I'm in a bit of a quandary, Your Honor, because actually action is defined within the statute. And I didn't I neglected to put it in my brief, but it actually is defined within the statute, and I'll be glad to provide that in a, uh, a memorandum of additional authority. And it talks about what a, and it's also found identical in the South Carolina, excuse me, South Dakota case I cited to you. The very same language is in their statute as well, which essentially indicates that a action is in a court of competent, uh, competent jurisdiction where one party can bring a claim or excuse me can seek redress against another that's both a complaint and a counterclaim but but as i but when i look at this language in rule 13a1 it, it seems to indicate that a counterclaim is filed as part of an action that's already that's ongoing and, and if we look at it that way then then the statute of limitations in, in 1-15A wouldn't apply, would it? I, I would disagree. And the, here, here's the issue that I have with that in my experience with the term pending, and it comes from prior pending actions where you have a subsequent lawsuit after one has already been filed. So I would contend to you that the use of pending action is not discussing the action that has been filed by the complaint but a preceding or another lawsuit altogether. I, I wasn't clear. I'm sorry. I apologize. I, I'm talking not about the, the pending action part, but, but A1 at the time the action was commenced. So that's talking about the action in which the counterclaim is filed. Uh, uh, and so what I'm getting at is A1 seems to view the counterclaim not as an independent action, but as part of a proceeding that's already underway. Well, I think you're parsing it out because it's, if you can say at the time of the action was commenced, the claim, it is dependent upon was the subject of a pending action. So I don't think, I think that when they're talking about that specific portion of the rule, they're not talking about the lawsuit that was, that is in which they're seeking to bring in a counterclaim. It's at least my reading of it. Go ahead. And, 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 I, and I don't mean to be, uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding your question, but my, my point is, is that you, know, you can parse out a certain language, but when it's dependent upon the other portion of it describing what a pending action is. And one, A1 says you don't have to assert it, uh, even though it would otherwise be compulsory if it's the subject of another pending action. Uh, but, but what I'm getting at is A1 draws a distinction between an action and a counterclaim and seems to treat a counterclaim as something that happens in an action, an action that would be subject to 1-15. Again, going back to the statute, I haven't cited, so I can't really talk about it, but if you look at the de definition of that, it doesn't make the distinction of a claim of one individual against another seeking redress. And if that's in fact what they're, they're both asking that, and that's the definition of what an action is. So 
is my understanding at the time of the action, I'm not sure what action they're referring to, but they're talking about compulsory counterclaims at that point. But certainly when you look at Farmer Research and their analysis and all the analysis that I've seen since, they don't have a problem in the cause of action portion of 1-15 requiring that a statute, excuse me, a, a counterclaim be filed within the statute of limitations. And that's, I don't know if that answers your question. And I'll, it may be inadequate and I apologize that's it. That's not been argued before, so it's a little difficult to anticipate that. Well, the questions may have been inadequate, but thank you. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sure the confusion is mine, is mine. The next part of it, and that's the really the easiest part of the analysis that is adopted by Farmer Research, is 152. We know it's a three-year statute of limitations personal injury case. And number three, then you look at Rule 13. Is there an exception within Rule 13 that allows a late filed or a relation back of a late filed counterclaim. It's not in there. So and that's a very simple application of what farmer research has been the law for the last 19 years. Now, so that's the simplest part of this argument and it is simple and it's very discreet. But if you look at some of the other arguments by the appellant, I'm a little concerned where you have them asking you to insert your influence or your language into what I contend are fairly straightforward, unambiguous, plain meaning statutes. And that you can't do. And I've cited a couple of cases out of the Court of Appeals from Judge Dietz, but I think that the standard is, generally is, is that if a statute is unambiguous, if it is plain meaning in the words that it uses, that you apply the plain meaning of those statutes. And I contend to you 115, 152, and 13, Rule 13 are all unambiguous and doesn't leave any opportunity for the court to interject its feelings as to what it should be. All you can do is apply the laws as plainly written. Now, so, there's been some so, other arguments. So you heard um, your friend. Uh, and he argue, is my friend. Argue that Brumble, uh, from 1874 uh, set out a, a clear rule that uh, counterclaims would relate back to the filing of a complaint. Yes, Do you agree or disagree with the reading of that case? I agree with the reading of that case. Uh, how do you say that the rules of silk procedure that were subsequently adopted uh, changed the holding in that case, or changed, excuse me, the rule that was derived from that case? Well, first, of course, that's the Burkle case, which says that any prior civil procedure law, case derived, is superseded by the rule of civil procedure. We know that. And then you have to look at the statutory provisions as they exist when the case is presented to the appellate courts. And you look at the case law that I've just gone over with you, and that's what they did in Farmer Research. Understanding that Farmer Research is not controlling, it is only persuasive authority to this court. But also understanding that it and has no authority to overrule one of your cases. But they didn't. The legislature did. Because that's what the statutes provide. So, so your argument then relies solely on the current statutes being clear and unambiguous. Absolutely, that? sir. Okay. So help me with your statutory construction. Yes, sir. I, I, was there a more specific issue as to the construction? Well, my reading okay, of it, it says, it says, you know, uh, <coughs> that a civil action has to be commenced within the periods, uh, within the chapter, and one of those periods is, you know, the how how is a counterclaim the commencement of an action? You have to understand the definition of action. And I can cite to you a case that I did cite that has that identical language that is also in the North Carolina statute that I will provide to the court 
in a memorandum of additional authority. If you give me the permission to address the North Carolina aspect, it's the same statute, but it's 1-2, and it tells you exactly what an action is. It doesn't talk about counterclaims. It doesn't talk about complaints or cross-claims. It talks about a right of one party to bring an action or bring, seek redress in a court of competent jurisdiction. So how is the word or, or what word civil action commenced? Um, what, is, what is clear and unambiguous about the commencement of a civil action other than when a complaint is filed? Well, no, I, I disagree with that. The issue being that the filing of the counterclaim is the commencement of that particular action because the, the way that statute, and I keep having to back around it, but I, if you read the particular statute that I'm just describing, 1.2, it talks about the right of an individual, right of a party to break, seek redress against another. Within that definition, you have complaints, you have counterclaims. They didn't use the term lawsuit in the definition of action. And so if you put the definition from 1.2 within that, they're not talking about lawsuits. If they'd wanted to put lawsuits, they would have put that there. But they didn't. They put action, which has a specific meaning under the statute. Well, to commence an action, what, what does it take to commence a civil action? Well, a civil action. You have two. What it says, in this civil case, action. you have two actions. Well, you, what does it take to commence your civil action? To, to start a lawsuit or an action? I mean, that's your question, isn't it? <laughs> I'm wanting to hear your argument okay. about what commences a, a civil, civil action. Civil, to me, refers to a complaint between one individual against another. But you've got to file the complaint. I mean, do I have to walk through it? You've got to no, pay no, the no, filing fee? No, 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 process. You, you understand. What does it take to file a civil action? To file a, a lawsuit, you have summons and complaint. That's the start of a lawsuit. And you've got to pay your filing fee. You have to. Well, yes, sir. You have to. Uh, uh, and then you have to make sure it's served within the uh, pursuant to Rule 4. All of those things. What, yes. what do you have to do to. Uh, file a counterclaim. File a counterclaim is that you have to pay a fee, $200. In addition to that, go to the clerk's office and file your answer and counterclaim. But since the parties have already been brought into court through the summons, that's just a new pleading, a new action. So rule three, the, the first sentence in rule three uh, the Rules of Civil Procedure says, if I may. yeah, sure, says a civil action is commenced by filing a complaint with the court. Doesn't that cut against your argument? Again, going back to the 1-2, it says as for those those as to this chapter, I think is the language they use, and that's referring specifically to the chapter of civil procedure, but also specifically the chapters pertaining to statute of limitations. So I didn't quite understand your answer. I'm just saying, and I apologize. <clears throat> that is the language, yes, sir, in Rule 3. So doesn't that cut against your position? I can see where you say that, but my point is, is that when you look at the definition of action, I mean, it's, it's within as it pertains to 1-2 as it pertains to this chapter, which is where you have 52 and 15, and all of the statutes that we're talking about in reference to this is that civil action doesn't refer to a lawsuit, it refers to that right to recover between two parties or that can you, so, so thinking about, you know, in legislative intent, can you help me understand why the General Assembly would want to create a situation in which uh, a, a person can file their lawsuit on the last day and, and thereby, under your interpretation of the law or the COA's interpretation of the law, um, avoid what might be a meritorious counterclaim? 
Well, I think it actually goes to sort of an issue that everybody's given three years to file this lawsuit. Mr. Cleary could have filed it on the day after this accident on the 20th of 2015. He neglected to file that lawsuit at all. So we want to encourage people to be litigious? No, sir. We don't want people to be litigious, but we do want people to understand that there are limitations and we don't want them to pursue meritorious claims. And if they don't think it's meritorious in three years, I don't think three years and one day is going to make any difference as to that. Um, do you think it's a fair outcome? Fair. That's an interesting word. I'm, I understand that that is different from different people. Uh, is it fair that he sat on his hands for three years? Is it fair that he, by his own counsel's admission, has a minimal case that he filed afterwards? Is that the opportunity of an adverse party to file a vexatious third-party complaint? Now, there's been some inferences here that this perhaps that Mr. Upchurch filed this with some sort of gamesmanship. And if that's the case, then it wouldn't be addressed two years later in a motion to amend the answer to the counterclaim. And so uh, I can tell you that, that the complaint when it was originally filed was there was nothing in gamesmanship involved. I mean, that's evidence just by the pleadings in the case. It didn't come up until, unfortunately, I got involved. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to think about, you know, if, if, if when we construe statutes, our goal is supposed to be to try to effectuate the intent of the legislature. Um, we also assume that the legislature knows the law. Brumble was the law. Um, it, it, so I'm trying to figure out why, what kind of policy reason would, would motivate the legislature to, to create a situation under, under your reading of the law that would... First of all, I'm going to disagree with you to some extent to the, that the purpose here of this court is to interpret what the legislature intended. That analysis only arises in the event that the language is unambiguous, and my contention it is not, and therefore we never get into speculation as to what the legislature did or did not intend in a particular statute. But to the extent why they did left it out, I have no idea. I don't know to the extent if there's a legislative history as to it. I know that there are different statutes, excuse me, uh, different rules of civil procedure depending upon whether you're in federal or in other states. But all I can tell you is, is reference to our rules of civil procedure and the rules that I've provided to you uh, and that are outlined in the farmer research case are unambiguous. So we don't need to speculate what the legislature was going to decide in this case and why they left it out or they didn't. But it's not for this court to add it into the, that legislation. Did it, I don't know if that answers your question. Again, I'm trying to do my best, but it's, uh, I mean, to me, it's what fair? Is it fair for someone to wait three years? Is it fair for somebody to uh, file a vexatious third party complaint late? I don't know. It, it, that's what's fair to you is different from what's fair to me, Your Honor. So, but in any event, there have been some other arguments made on behalf of the appellant that I think need some brief attention, and I apologize. <clears throat> and first one is the Gardner case. The Gardner case does conflict with Upchurch, not Upchurch, excuse me, Farmer Research. But the problem with that is, is that it never discussed the rules of civil procedure, never discussed the change in the statute limitation statutes that I've gone over. The next one is, is there's a contention that farmer research only applied to permissive counterclaims. If you read the case, they both arise out of a shareholders agreement and both parties claimed breach of contract. So clearly it was a compulsory counterclaim because it arose out of the same circumstances and transactions. The next issue, Your Honor, they ask us to adopt the federal rule, which is different, does not apply North Carolina law. And the next is, is the public policy race to the courthouse. And that is something that we were just talking about with Justice Allen. 
The last issues were the equitable tolling. And we learned about that for the first time that the uh, appellant was seeking uh, equitable relief. We didn't hear about it at the trial court. We didn't hear about it at the Court of Appeals. And we didn't hear about it in his brief. And whether that's within the scope of his briefing on uh, in violation of Rule 28, that's up to you. But in any event, we talked about two separate cases that he submitted, one out of New Jersey, which is an interesting case in the sense that uh, it cites no cases for its holding. It cites one case that it was held before and they left it open, and then they cite the right federal court's hornbook. Now, we've talked about there are other hornbooks, more apparently, has a different viewpoint. And if you read the Murray versus Mannheim case that I've cited out of South Dakota, they talk about the difference between those two hornbooks. But again, federal law is not, is only persuasive and certainly not controlling. The other case, Your Honor, is out of the Western District of Alabama, Byrd versus Williams. And that's a very interesting case because in that case, the legislature in Alabama has cured what Mr. Justice Allen was concerned about. What is the legislature intending and what did they do? Well, they did add specifically within that, when a defendant pleads a counterclaim to the plaintiff's demand to which the plaintiff the statute, replies the statute limitations, defendant is nevertheless entitled to counterclaim where it was legal subsistent claim at the time of the right of the action accrued to the plaintiff on the claim of the action. And that's Alabama Code 68-84. So the legislature can cure it. Again, they even go further along and later on there's an Alabama Rules of Civil Procedure that provides when a pleader fails to set up a counterclaim through the oversight or inadvertence or inexcusable, or excuse me, excusable neglect or where justice requires the pleader may leave, uh, may by leave of court set up the counterclaim by amendment. So the Alabama legislature has addressed your concerns. But North Carolina legislature has not. And if you look at the clear, unambiguous language of what I've cited to you and what was cited in Farmer Research, I would contend to you there's only one result, and that is, is that a late-filed counterclaim is time-barred. I'm willing to remand the remainder of my time, but I would request that the court affirm the underlying uh, Court of Appeals case in this case and the reasoning in Farmer Research, and I thank you for your time. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Your Honor, I just want to spend the rest of my time talking about it. I think Justice Allen brought up the issue of fairness and the idea that I can get drug into a lawsuit that I didn't want to be in in the first place. I didn't sit on my hands. I made a conscious decision not to go to court over this series of facts. And now I'm being drug into court over this series of facts. Certainly I should be able to fight back. That is fairness. I feel there, there's got to be somewhere in the Constitution that talks about fairness. And if you get drug into court, you have the ability to file a counterclaim. You're not filing a new case, a new complaint. I, I appreciated the questioning along the lines of what is considered the commencement of an action. It's very clear the commencement of an action is filing a complaint. A counterclaim is not a complaint. It is a responsive pleading to a series of facts and allegations being made against an individual or an entity. It's a responsive. It's a reaction. It is being filed to counter the allegations made in that complaint. And that's the distinguishment I want to emphasize. I also want to emphasize the failure of the legislature to specifically address this issue leaves a lot of open-ended gray area for the North Carolina Supreme Court. Okay, I'm assuming that that was not codified back in 1874 when Brumble and Brown fought about what that sheriff should have paid back. The law of the land stood until 1974 and then it was, it was validated again by the Court of Appeals after the rules of civil procedure were enacted. And then it was changed to, by two slightly different cases. 
That Darcy case was not a compulsory counterclaim. The AA Pharma, I would argue, was not a compulsory counterclaim. It touched upon issues of fraud that were not adequately pled in the initial complaint. A new series of facts were being brought in that pharma research case when it, it alleged fraud. It went from being a, a declaration of a policy and what, what is applicable to cover a car wreck and a death to, hey, there was fraud on when I induced to buy that policy. S different set of facts. So there is, pharma research is distinguishable. I, I have a pharma research question for you. So hope I can answer. Um, in, in its analysis in pharma research, the, the COA pointed out that in, in Rule 15C of the Rules of Civil Procedure, there's a provision that provides that claims asserted in an amended pleading relate back. Um, and the point that, 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 or, or the, that the court made was here we have, you know, the legislature specifically providing for the relation back of claims. It didn't do that with respect to uh, these with counterclaims. My understanding of that pharma research case, Your Honor, in response to your question is that the amended counterclaim relied upon facts that were not originally pled in the complaint. I think the pharma research court touched on some of the notice issues, meaning that defendant in pharma research pulled in a whole new series of facts when he made that amended counterclaim. I want to say he brought in that allegations of fraud. I think that the point is that when it comes to um, uh, amended pleadings, the legislature specifically provided for relation back. It didn't specifically or expressly provide for relation back uh, with respect to counterclaims. So what are we to make of that? Well, and I would go on and say, and the legislature specifically didn't provide for statute of limitations for counterclaims though they did delineate between compulsive and compulsory counterclaims and permissive. There's an absence of statute of limitations in the, that I, at least I can find for, that, that pertain only, that says, for counterclaims. The legislature did delineate between claims, bringing an action, commencing an action, and counterclaims. And, 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 and the legislature's failure to give count, statute of limitations, I would argue perhaps is purposeful. They want to know whether it's permissible or whether it's compulsive, compulsory counterclaim. In this case, it's, 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 it's compulsory. If, let's just say this, if, if Upchurch had filed his complaint two years prior, a year after the accident occurred, and Val Cleary filed an answer, he would not later be able to file uh, in a separate action a counterclaim. He would have to file it with counterclaims with his answer. Now, he could amend his pleadings, but he couldn't file a separate action. So there, I would argue there's a specific delineation by the legislature between what do you do when you commence an action? You file a complaint, you make your claims, and then the counterclaims. It's not a separate, it's not filing an action. It's, it's a reaction. It's filing it in, in, in response to being sued. Thank you, your honors. Counsel.